0: This is Kick-Ass News, I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right, with hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash kick. That's g.co slash play slash kick. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. For nearly 10 years, Ben Rhodes saw almost everything that happened at the center of the Obama administration, first as a speechwriter, then as deputy national security adviser, and finally as a multipurpose aide and close collaborator. He started every morning in the Oval Office with the president's daily briefing, traveled the world with Obama, and was at the center of some of the most consequential and controversial moments of the presidency from waiting out the Bin Laden raid in the Situation Room and responding to the Arab Spring, to reaching a nuclear agreement with Iran, leading secret negotiations with the Cuban government to normalize relations, and confronting the resurgence of nationalism and nativism that culminated in the election of Donald Trump. Now he writes about it in a new book titled The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Today Ben Rhodes comes on the podcast to talk about how he survived eight years in the White House, his close friendship with the most powerful man in the world, and what it was like to travel the globe representing America. Ben shares how the Arab Spring taught him that sometimes hope and change have to take a backseat to pragmatism in the big picture. He reveals how he secretly worked with the Pope to reopen relations with Cuba how sleeplessness led to some frayed nerves during the Iran nuclear negotiations, and how wild conspiracy theories around Benghazi continue to follow him even today. He throws cold water on Trump's accusation that President Obama ordered the FBI to investigate him, discusses how he and Obama emotionally processed Trump's victory, and talks about the somber mood as President Obama tried to encourage other world leaders on his final foreign trip after the election. Plus, he weighs in on the Syrian red line, Hillary Clinton's private server, sanctions against Russia, and Trump's North Korean photo op. Coming up with Ben Rhodes in just a moment. Rhodes was a senior speechwriter and foreign policy advisor to the 2008 Obama presidential campaign before serving as deputy national security advisor to President Barack Obama from 2009 to 2017, overseeing the administration's national security communications, speechwriting, public diplomacy, and global engagement programming. He writes about his eight years in the Obama administration in a new memoir titled The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Ben Rhodes, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. Wow. Eight years. It is very rare that one person hangs around for a full four years, much less eight years in the White House. Uh, How did you not get burnt out?
1: Well, I actually did get burnt (laughs) out, Um, (laughs) and I wouldn't recommend it for your mental and physical health. Um, (laughs) But, you know, in writing the book, I I saw that there was a real opportunity uh, because I was there the first day, and the last day I flew out with the Obamas to... California uh, as they started their post-presidency lives. And uh, I could kind of trace the whole arc of the story. And frankly, one of the things that I wanted to show is the wear and tear that these jobs have on people um, and how much For they sure. can grind you down and how at times, you know, I was out of steam, but you, you then you find a way um, to basically be propelled by the opportunities that come with those jobs uh, to put a little bit more gas in the tank.
0: Now, you had an unusual amount of access to the president. It kind of even became a joke among the others on the White House staff how in sync the two of you were. Yeah. Um, from your vantage point, how did you see President Obama change over those eight years, or, or did you?
1: Um, it's a really good question. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, he didn't change, um, in that he's a pretty mentally disciplined person and he has a very consistent worldview. And As a politician, I think he was successful because of that authenticity and consistency. If you look at his 2004 convention speech, which really launched him on the political scene, it's the same message as his farewell address, Um, Mm -hmm. and that's what connected to people. Where he changed, though, I think, is in his approach to the presidency. Um, People forget—it's hard to (laughs) remember, frankly, in this polarized time— he ran in 08 as a, a unifying figure, as someone who was going to reach across divides and really try to puncture uh the hyperpartisanship of the early 21st century. Um, when he came in, uh, the first couple of years, you know, we had large majorities in Congress. He was able to get a lot done. And then we just ran into kind of a wall of Republican obstructionism. And there were kind of three Obama presidencies. You know, those first two years when we were passing huge pieces of legislation like healthcare. Uh, Wall Street reform, obviously the stimulus. Um, but then the the four years that followed, very little <laughs> got done in some ways, partic- particularly legislatively. Yeah. Then the last two years, he found a different way to be president. Um, and I think those, have, uh, those people who followed him closely felt kind of a freedom in his actions. And he did things like embracing gay marriage fully, the Paris Climate Agreement. We did the opening to Cuba that I had worked on he was kind of untethered um you know he he found a way to just be himself in the office um that I, I characterized in the book as you know he looked up after that last midterm election in 2014 and said i've got 2 years left uh, and I'm I'm not going to leave anything on the field, um, to use the sports metaphor, and and so he he changed in that regard, not in terms of who he was or what he believed, but and how he approached the job and where he he was willing to take risks.
0: Yeah, and amid all of the partisan rancor in Washington and the intransigence in Congress. You say that you guys actually looked forward to the foreign trips. Yeah. What was it like to land in a country on Air Force 1, have the red carpet rolled out and know for the next day or two you're actually there representing America.
1: Well, that was the best part of the job, frankly. And yeah. one of the strangest parts of the job is you know that aura he had in 2008 in the United States, you know, where we kind of caught lightning in a bottle. Um it never left abroad. You know, He was always seen as this transformative figure in just about every place that we went around the world. Mm-hmm. And so it was very odd to kind of leave the partisan and sometimes trivial back and forth in Washington and show up someplace. And there's millions of people on the motorcade routes. And I would sometimes go back to these places we'd visited years earlier, and they'd be quoting back to me speeches he'd given. You know, speeches that barely registered here at home, but that— No kidding. um, —in those other countries— Speeches that you probably wrote. Yeah, I had a very strange experience. Uh, I'll give one example. You know, I worked on the Cairo speech that he gave in 2009. Um, And I was in Myanmar um, a couple years later, and I was at uh, the Myanmar Peace Center, which is a place that focuses on national reconciliation and interethnic dialogue, which uh, is badly needed in that country— and I saw the Cairo speech translated into Burmese. And and you know, it was strange to have written a speech not for that audience and see them kind of studying it. And I said, Well, why are you doing this? You know, why why the Cairo speech? It has nothing to do with Myanmar. And they said, Well, it's a speech about tolerance and how to get along with people who are different. And we thought that could be helpful here. So, you know, abroad you found these strange ways in which people were pulling from the example of Barack Obama to to connect it to their own story. Um, and and you got a sense of how he was a truly global figure, uh, even uh, if his presidency
0: was highly contested at home. Now I know that you don't like the term Obama Doctrine, but yeah. <laughs> how would you sum up President Obama's foreign policy agenda going into office?
1: Well, you know we went into office, you know, colored by crisis, um, and you know the financial right. crisis and the Iraq War were kind of the two. Things that we had to deal with off the bat mm-hmm. um, that put us in a pretty deep hole, and I and I describe in the book the first long foreign trip we went on. You know, he's getting other countries to pitch in uh, to you know bail out the global economy. He went to a NATO summit. He's asking for more troops for Afghanistan, even after those allies kind of resented the Iraq War. Um, he's asking countries to take Guantanamo detainees. He felt like he was spending all of his political capital. He told me just to kind of keep things moving, instead of being able to pick his own uh, foreign policy initiatives. I'd sum up how we approached it as he wanted to draw down and limit our military engagements in the Middle East, which he thought were not succeeding and kind of bleeding uh, literally and figuratively American resources. And that was one of his key campaign promises. Key campaign promise. Probably the biggest. The biggest. And he wanted to draw that down So that we could focus on a broader agenda in the world, so that we could focus on issues like climate change, so that we could focus on regions like the Asia Pacific that were going to be, frankly, more important than the Middle East to the future uh, of the United States. So um, the overarching project was uh, to try to draw down the wars and then broaden the set of issues that America was focused on on in the world. And that's where we got to at the end when we did the Paris Climate Accord the opening to Cuba, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, um, which both prevented a war and solved the problem. You know, that was the, the purest manifestation of, of mm. what his foreign policy was about. But it was a
0: long way getting to those Uh, (laughs) between Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, I think it does speak to his credit that he was, unlike the current president, able to go into office and reevaluate his positions based on new information and the advice from the military and intelligence communities.
1: Yeah, it was a tough balance. I mean, I, you know, the first two or three years of our foreign policy was really dominated by Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, I tell the story of something that a lot of people probably don't remember that well, which was this Afghan review, where he simultaneously, um, you know, had to confront the reality that things in Afghanistan were going very badly at the beginning of his administration, and we had this proposal for a pretty massive uh, escalation in U.S. military involvement. And you know, it was interesting in writing the book. I actually reread the best and the brightest at the same time. Um, The book that David Halberstam wrote about escalation in Vietnam. And I saw these strange parallels. Um, You know, all the military advice is do more, provide more troops. And what Obama ended up doing that was interesting and very characteristic of him is he provided a lot of those troops, but he also um, fixed a timeline uh, to how long we would keep those levels of troops in Afghanistan. And that allowed him to both. Uh, surge forces there, and and make a lot of progress against Al Qaeda, including taking up Bin Laden, in that part of the world. But it also kept us from getting on a, a slippery slope to kind of permanent escalation mm-hmm. there. Um, but you know, it was a, it, it was a process that was very uh, fact based. You know, let's evaluate the problem, let's set out clear objectives for what we're trying to do, but let's also be clear about what we're not trying to do. And and he kept reminding the military, we're not going to to fix Afghanistan. We're not going to be able to to make it a kind of well-functioning government. You know, the the Afghans have to do that themselves. Um, And that allowed him... Uh, to deal with those issues while not letting his presidency get overwhelmed by
0: them. Just as you're starting to get somewhere in Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, the Arab Spring breaks out and derails everything. You were one of the voices in the administration calling for intervention while some of the old guard wanted to stay out of Egypt and Libya and then Syria. Having seen how the Arab Spring played out, has your perspective changed at all?
1: yeah well, I trace in the book that my my perspective actually changed while I was in the government um and and I want to be very clear and I try to do this in the book you know when i a lot of these political memoirs end up just kind of being you know here's a bunch of issues here's why I was right about those issues <laughs> yeah. you know here's maybe a couple of people I didn't like that I want to settle scores I want to make clear that. To this day, I I can't nobody can know for certain that they were right or wrong on these foreign policy issues. And I I wanted to show that complexity. At the outset of the Arab Spring, I saw the hopeful opportunity in it. You know, that here is people in Egypt expressing a desire for democratic change. Um, We had, I thought, an obligation to test whether or not we could help that succeed. Um, In Libya, uh, we had uh, Gaddafi lose control of basically. Half of his country, and then basically go to war with that uh, other half. And we had the chance with a military intervention to essentially stop him on the outskirts of a city where he was going to massacre potentially tens of thousands of people. Um, And in Syria, I saw things start to fall apart. And I was uh, arguing there too, we should get involved militarily. But I remember even early on in the process you know, I would I would say things in meetings like, you know, we should bomb the runways where Assad's planes take off. And Obama, who's actually going to have to be responsible for this, looks at me and says, well, what happens the next day when, after we bomb the runways, the Syrians with the Russians and the Iranians just rebuild those runways? The point he was making is, there's no military option in Syria that's going to make any difference unless we really go all in. Um, and nobody wanted to kind of acknowledge that reality. People mm-hmm. kind of wanted to to presume that, you know, well, some cruise missile strikes or some limited action by us could change things on the ground. And I analytically um, came to understand that, even if emotionally I felt Mm -hmm. like we had to do something. I just had to, to be intellectually honest, um, reckon with the fact that, We can't just keep doing things for the sake of doing them.
0: And I think that sort of gets to the title of the book, Uh, The World As It Is. That was something that President Obama said to you. You guys want to deal with the world that you want and focus on that, but it's not practical always. That's
1: right. And there's an irony in the title, which is the the formulation that he would use is— you have to see the world as it is in order to pursue the world as it ought to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so it's this kind of blend of realism and idealism, because his point is, it's not like we throw up our hands and say, this is a tough world, so it's not even worth trying. But his point was, if you don't reckon with the reality of the world as it is, then you won't be effective in actually pursuing the more idealistic vision of, of how the world should be.
0: Was it a mistake to draw the red line on Syria in the first place?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that I uh, do in the book is I recount how the phrase "red line" was actually not the chosen phrase. Um, it's a very peculiar thing about the president of the United States as he says millions of words. We got—and you never know which words are going to become kind of the, the ones <laughs> that right. you're known for. We got indications in 2012 that Syria might use chemical weapons. And we sent these private messages that I described to to Assad and to Russia and to Iran, kind of warning them, don't do this, you'll be held accountable. And we crafted public language that was very precise, you know, if you do this, you will be held accountable, um, which didn't necessarily translate directly to, we'll go to war against you. In a press conference, uh, Obama was asked uh, what might lead him to change his thinking on Syria. And he said, if there's chemical weapons used, that would be a red line. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like that was the um, the the result of some careful process. Um, okay. <laughs> it, so it, I don't know if mistake is the right word, but it certainly wasn't. It was one of these cases where um, unintentionally um, that phrase in a press conference, probably thirty minutes yeah, in, suddenly becomes suddenly policy. suddenly becomes policy, right? <laughs> and it was obviously the case after this massive chemical weapons attack that. Um, we were going to have to do something to respond. And I take the reader through this very intense week where at the beginning of the week, I had every expectation that we were going to bomb Syria. And I think Obama did too. Um, and then what happened is all the factors that you would want to to materialize positively kind of collapsed. The, the international support didn't come together. Um, the British had a vote in parliament to, about whether or not to join us and voted against it. Angela Merkel, you know, his closest partner said she couldn't support it. Um, the Congress right. started to warn us if we did this without congressional authorization, it would be
0: unconstitutional. The Republicans who yeah. demanded action suddenly it, was Exactly. Saying, they did, yeah. they were the ones asking for it and then yeah. <laughs> it was complete <laughs> they tried hypocrisy. They both sides of the yeah. issue. Yeah,
1: it was yeah. A, it was the ultimate sign that all they if Obama was for something they were against it, you know. Yeah. These it are the was people just who a political football. Yeah, they'd given Bush a blank check to do whatever the heck he wanted as commander in chief. By the way, when Trump bombed Syria, Nobody raised this issue of congressional authorization. <laughs> you're right. Um, yeah. But when Obama even you know hinted at it, suddenly they're saying it'd be unconstitutional if you didn't do this, and he was worried. He told me, you know, they could impeach him. Um, you know, they laid down a marker. Um, and so what he said is, look, I will go to Congress, and if they give me this authorization, I'll be in a much stronger position if I do something to sustain that action, because I think he believed that you weren't going to have a one-off strike. If you're going to change things, this is going to be a long-term proposition. And if I can't get that congressional support, then I shouldn't do this because I'll be isolated at home and abroad and I don't have a good military option for Syria. And that's ultimately what happened. And, and we ended up, uh, instead of going to war, um, having this diplomatic agreement to remove a significant amount of chemical weapons uh, with the Russians.
0: And one of the very few moments that just was a pure victory for President Obama, whether you were a Democrat or Republican, was, of course, the bin Laden raid. Yeah. You were there for that. How did that weekend play out for you?
1: Well, you know, I wanted to let people experience how strange it was to know this secret that, that like 20 people in Washington <laughs> knew yeah. and nobody else did. You know, I was in these meetings um, leading up to Friday where Obama had to make a decision about whether or not to, to launch this operation to get bin Laden. We didn't know for sure bin Laden was in the compound. Uh, things could go wrong. This is a special operation deep inside of a uh, another country that we were not, you know, uh, actively at war with. Um, he decides to do it. That weekend uh, was—I I wanted people to see the kind of strange personal <laughs> dynamics that can emerge. So first, my brother was staying with me because it was the weekend of the White House Correspondence Dinner, which is this kind of absurd <laughs> annual exercise yeah, ritual. Talk about a
0: juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, and my brother's the president of CBS News. Um, and so here <laughs> I am. I know the— the most, you know, precious news story in the world that's going to take place. And, you know, I've got somebody staying with me who's the head of one of the ma- major news organizations in the country. And I, you know, just not telling him what I'm doing, while I'm at work on that Saturday. <laughs> then that Saturday night, none of us wanted to go to this dinner, which, you know, people probably know about because every year some comedian offends somebody and it's mm-hmm. kind of a tempest in a teapot. But if none of us showed up, all the journalists would be like, well, wait, where are all the national security people? I mean, talk about tip off. (laughs) So we had to go to just kind of keep up appearances. Then in a kind of Supreme irony, this is the year that Trump had really pushed the birther, uh, uh, thing. And, and Obama had to release his birth certificate and Trump was at this dinner. And so then Obama gets up and gives this kind of comedy routine, just taking Donald Trump apart. Um, and I'm sitting there just thinking like, we got to get to bed (laughs) to get to this bin Laden thing in the morning. Um, so, the you know, we, we kind of put on this front, false front, you know, that, that nothing unusual is happening that night. Next morning, we go into work and we are sitting in the situation room and essentially the, the the head of special operations is narrating this operation for us. And at the very beginning, it seemed like it was going to go terribly wrong because a helicopter kind of crashed. Yeah. It clipped the top of the compound. History could have been very different if that heli- the pilot didn't somehow steady that and land it. Um, But then within a few minutes, everything just went perfectly, which doesn't often happen in government. Bin Laden was there. He was killed. Um, No U.S. troops were harmed. And I remember and I described going outside the White House to just get a few minutes to myself because I never wanted that moment to end. You know, you ever have a situation where you're like, (laughs) yeah, I just want time to stop here for a few minutes because it's never going to be quite this good.
0: Yeah, because I'm sure you know that the next day or the day after yeah. that, it's going to be back to the yeah. same old battle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Has your brother ever forgiven you for not tipping him <laughs> off?
1: <laughs> well, you know, and it was funny. I remember that Sunday morning I woke up and I had to go to work on a Sunday, which is not normal. And my brother's staying with me and I was like, should I tell him anything about where I'm going? And I was like, know, oh, I'm just going to take a shower and just get out of here. Um, and so I, we never talked about it. Uh, my wife... When I got home that night uh, after Obama made his remarks to the nation, I got home at like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And the first thing she said to me when I walked in uh, the door is, uh, do you think he told Michelle? (laughs) She's thinking like, uh, I wonder if he didn't tell his wife.
0: We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Ben Rhodes when we come back in just a minute. How do you stay up to date with the latest business news? If you're still relying on traditional news outlets, keeping up with the news feels like a chore, but it doesn't have to be that way. Business news can be enjoyable, even something you actually look forward to. How? It's called Morning Brew, and it's a free daily email newsletter that delivers the latest business news directly to your inbox every weekday morning. The writers at Morning Brew curate the top business stories that you should know about and deliver them in a conversational and witty tone. Best of all, it's just a quick five-minute read. Seriously, imagine getting all the information you need to start your day in just five minutes and enjoying every second of it. I know how overwhelming it can be when you've got so much news coming at you every day, and that's why I subscribe to Morning Brew for my business news. I love that it's concise, easy to read, and even entertaining. A great, fast way to get the most essential business news before I head into the office. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for free at morningbrew.com kick. That's morningbrew.com kick to start getting your daily dose of business news. And now, back to the show. Now, let's talk about your favorite subject, Benghazi. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of misinformation, some of it deliberate, about what happened there. Set yeah. the record straight and walk us through that first 24 hours.
1: Yeah, it, this will sound strange, but I was actually very glad to have the opportunity. You know, we could never actually tell our story um, of what, right. what happened. And this book, I think, is the first time that someone who's in the middle of that for the Obama people could say, here's what happened. And so first, what I wanted to convey is the day of those attacks was a, was a pretty crazy day at the White House because all day we were dealing with violent protests at our embassy in Cairo. And what had happened was there was this internet video, um, which is now widely kind of mocked on the right. People act like we invented this thing. Uh, yeah. No, it was a very real problem. There was a video that made fun of the Prophet Muhammad that aired on Egyptian television, um And outraged you know a lot of Egyptians, and so this mob essentially descended on our embassy in Cairo. They breached the wall, it was violent and and that 's what we were dealing with. How can we get more security at that embassy and while we 're dealing with that, we hear that something has happened in Benghazi where we have a very small diplomatic facility, and we can't we the information is much more scattered because we we don't have a big presence there. And that night we hear that our ambassador Chris Stevens has been killed. And I knew Chris Stevens personally, so it was kind of a wrenching really? thing. Um and uh you know, so there, there was a it was a horrible day. I went home, and then that whole week, all week there were protests across the Muslim world, and these two have been totally kind of almost erased from history because of this video. Um and you know, people were killed in, in our embassy in Tunisia, not Americans, but people were in the protest, uh, from Yemen to Pakistan to Sudan, even in European countries we're having these violent protests. And so it was kind of a chaotic, crazy week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of balls to keep up it's in a the lo- air. Exa- yeah, even by the standards of the White House, uh, it felt like the world was unraveling. You yeah. Know? And so the most mundane thing you have to deal with in government is, you know, who goes on these Sunday talk shows. And so that Friday I get called up to the White House press secretary's office and they're like, somebody's got to go out and do these shows. Nobody ever wanted to do them. It was my job um, to to go find this person who could do it. So um, I asked Hillary Clinton. They didn't even respond because, <laughs> uh, you know, she was tired. And frankly, you know, who wants to do that? Uh, I asked our national security advisor. He didn't want to do it. Susan Rice is much more of a kind of a trooper, so she said, okay, I'll I'll do this, but can you just put together some prep materials for me? And I describe in the book, um, I probably spent five minutes cutting and pasting what we would call press guidance. So every day when the White House Press Secretary goes out, you have a bunch of Qs and As for him. And the most mundane part of my day, five minutes of me just kind of compiling these materials into a document, uh, ended up getting... Talking points from the CIA about you know what's the latest about what we think happened in Benghazi, kind of drop that into that document, send it off to her. That became like the, the the beating heart of a four-year conspiracy theory. Yeah, Th- this completely mundane. You know, the the allegation basically became that we were hatching some kind of diabolical conspiracy. We were inventing stories about this video. We were deliberately choosing to lie about what happened in Benghazi. To, to, I don't know, somehow cover something up, although it was never clear to me what we were supposed to have been covering up. And what I realized is, in writing this, is that you know, Benghazi would flare up. Something would happen to bring it back in the news. you know mm-hmm. The Republicans would you know, claim that they'd found some smoking gun or something, and it would always end up being debunked, but it was enough to get a lot of media attention. But then it wouldn't go away. And what I realized is, when it wasn't front and center in Washington, you know, I had a, a White House Twitter account, and I could look at this. And you know, most days, like a, you know, a few dozen people might tweet at me, but then every now and then there'd be like thousands of people. There'd be this giant surge <laughs> of you know, you killed people in Benghazi, you helped the Muslim Brotherhood in Benghazi, and, and what I realized is that I couldn't see it, but somewhere out in America, like there's a talk radio segment running, or Infowars, yeah. or Breitbart was running a piece, and. And I kind of got acquainted with the right wing yeah. media ecosystem. They were pumping oxygen into this outrage machine. And each each time it did come back in the news, the 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 outrage would be that much greater. And you know, two years after Benghazi happens, you know, I'm getting chased up the stairs with my dry cleaning with a Fox News camera crew like yelling at me. I I, I was kind of um uh darkly amused at the Outroar over, you know, Sarah Sanders not getting, you know, seated at a red hen. I had death threats for like four years. Okay? No kidding. Wow. I had Secret Service patrolling my street because of like threats of physical violence, not because I was denied a meal at the red hen, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and But to me, it explains Trump because this kind of conspiracy theory minded uh, view of the world fed by people who are living inside of kind of a hermetically sealed media mm-hmm. environment enabled by kind of congressional Republicans who are more than happy to kind of ride that wave, um, you know, that there's a pretty direct line from that brand of politics and media to Trump getting out of that Republican field.
0: Mm-hmm. And and as someone in the foreign policy field, when you look at places like Africa and also former Soviet satellites and so forth, you've personally seen how dangerous those conspiracy theories can be.
1: It's a great point um, that I actually hadn't thought of, that basically... You know I've seen in other countries their their countries being destabilized by conspiracy theories mm-hmm. they they spread like wildfire i mean in 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 Myanmar frankly a lot of the the ethnic cleansing that took place last year there were weird conspiracy theories about what Muslim minorities were doing and in in Benghazi in a way we became more you know a conspiracy theory um i mean I'll tell you a very quick story of like I met somebody recently who it was a very nice woman who. Didn't know who I was. And she was talking about how terrible Benghazi was. And I <laughs> thought, this is a great opportunity. I can finally kind of almost undercover ask this person. And I asked her, like, what do you think we were covering up? Um, okay, let's say, I obviously don't agree with it, but let's just take as given, like, like you know, there was some cover-up. And she couldn't say. I mean, it, that's what was so weird about Benghazi is um, nobody could really identify by the end what— even the allegation was uh, beyond that you know we lied blah 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 but the that the only reason that is um which again is not true but the only reason that 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 should matter right is that it was a cover up but nobody could say what it is we were covering up so it was a conspiracy theory without anything underneath it um yeah i wanted to show like w- we couldn't figure this out but susan and i talked about this like why, why, would we, <laughs> why would we have, like, risked, you know, our lives and reputations yeah. to, like, have her on the Sunday shows make up a story about a video? Like, it, it, yeah. it doesn't—it's so illogical. But if you look at Trump today, it makes sense, right? Because a lot of what Trump says yeah. is totally logical, but people choose to believe it.
0: Yeah, and Benghazi, along with the email server, became just this cudgel to bludgeon Hillary Clinton over yeah. the head nonstop with. Yeah. Um, I guess that I could say that maybe the the server was careless. I've never seen any malicious intent behind it or intent to get away with anything. Yeah. Um, privately, was President Obama upset when he found out that she hadn't been maybe as careful as she could have been with those emails?
1: Yeah, you know, I— uh, um First of all, this they found that through the Benghazi committee. <laughs> so so all roads kind of <laughs> lead to right. Benghazi. It was the Benghazi committee that somehow? I forgot do. that. Um, I think that when we found, and I remember I learned about this in the press. You know, when they kind of put it out, and I thought, and I think President Obama, it was just strange. You know, um, it, it, I don't think we thought like, wow, this was some plot from her to. Yeah, you know, it was just kind of a strange thing to do to have a private email server. Um, and it did violate, you know, you're supposed to use only government emails for government business. Now, I will let you in on a secret. Like, nobody is perfect in that. I mean, the Trump people, I guarantee you that occasionally when you can't log on to your work email, you know, you, you send one email on a Gmail, yeah. right? Well, he so, still has his
0: personal iPhone.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so some <laughs> yeah. some of that is to be expected. But having taken the extra step of having a personal server— is pretty unusual and frankly, um, it, it, it just unnecessary. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we, our reaction was, this is, was kind of bizarre. Um, but I, 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 you know, I guess if you're, you know, a former first lady and, uh, you know, that's a different kind of life. Right. And, and, uh, the scrutiny that, that came down on it is so, um, Put it this way: If we thought it was strange, she had a server. the 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 fo- hyper focus on this. And President Obama said after the the election, and he I remember him going to to our media and saying, "Like, you guys need to reflect on this. Like, yeah. how many times did you write about her server versus you know Trump's right? Any number of of things involving Trump. Yeah. There was something something kind of broke in American politics and media. Uh, in the way that election was covered, that um, uh, that again, I, I understand from having lived it for ten years that the, these kind of trivial stories and the mainstream media's fear of being called biased causes them to like hyperventilate about these stupid things like her server, um, but. Uh, you know, we're living with the consequences of
0: that. <laughs> yeah, and you saw some of that in this wonderful documentary you and I were talking about before we went on air here, Greg Barker's The yeah, final, final Year. year yeah. Um, in that final year or so, Obama's presidency seemed to take on a fresh sense of urgency. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a president more resistant to the usual lame duck curse yeah. and more determined to run out the clock than President Obama Specifically, how did the White House begin to lay the groundwork for the Iran nuclear deal? I wanted to show it took us like seven years to get to that because mm. we
1: basically had sanctions on Iran for several years. And then um, for for two years, we were in these painstaking negotiations. We have, I mean, contrary to the North Korea approach they're taking, we had you know Ernie Moniz, our secretary of energy, was a Nobel Prize winning nuclear physicist in those negotiations. Um, and... Uh, we finally get this uh this deal done that you know imposes significant constraints on their program ships ninety eight percent of their nuclear material out of the country, puts all these international inspectors uh in in into Iran to verify that they 're not cheating um and the politics of Iran though were so toxic uh in the United States that uh what actually frankly um shouldn't have been nearly as controversial, like was just this subject of extraordinary scrutiny. I mean, I write in the book, it was strange to me that while I was in the White House for eight years, we were at war the entire time, and there was more scrutiny of the Iran deal than any of those wars. It was it was harder to do diplomacy than go to war. Um, like, I think if we had gone to war with Iran, I frankly think there would have been less attention on it than just this, this arms control agreement. Um, which was unusual, which says something
0: interesting about American uh, foreign yeah. policy and politics. But um, yeah. we scrutinize peace more than war. We do, which is because well, I don't know what that says about us. Um, yeah.
1: But um, you know, the last year it was basically making sure that this was in good standing for the next people coming in. So making sure <laughs> Iran is complying, Worked making sure well. we're complying, yeah. making sure that there's the verification inspections is working and. Mm. What is really disappointing is that it was working very well, exactly as intended. When we did the handoff, Iran is complying. And so well, in fact, that Trump spent a year and a half trying to find evidence that Iran was cheating and couldn't. And his own intelligence community, his own military kept saying, nope, they're complying. And finally, he just said, OK, ignored that and said, well, I'm going to scrap yeah. it anyway.
0: Yeah. yeah, I've talked to Hayden. I've talked to Clapper. Yeah. I haven't found anyone in the IC that thinks that it was a good idea to back out of the deal.
1: Yeah, And those are not, you know, Mike Hayden is not a dove on right. Iran. You know?
0: <laughs> For sure. Was there ever any truth to these stories that the Iranian foreign minister was screaming at John Kerry in negotiations and the Secret Service had to run in and thought they had to rescue him? Not that,
1: no, not that I think, uh, I don't think so. I, I okay. do think... Um, they, the last couple of weeks, um, they did not like sleep. It was really, we'd have these uh v- VTCs with Carrie, and it'd be like eight or nine o'clock in Washington, and so you'd realize this was like four or five in the morning in Europe wow. where they're negotiating. So, I do think they did yell at each other, yeah. I think that is totally Frayed true. Nerves, be- yeah, it's like because these people, um, had not slept for like two weeks, and and actually, that final year does a good job of just showing like the exhaustion. I mean I remember thinking I I was totally exhausted. John Kerry's 70 years old and he's like literally going on 1 2 hours of sleep a day. Um but it you know it it, it you know it, it's hard uh to to get these things done. Hmm. Um so I think there were a lot of raised voices. Um I don't think I, I ever remember hearing about uh, <laughs> security <laughs> intervention.
0: At any point, was there talk of would there be any benefit to President Obama doing a handshake photo op with Rouhani or the Ayatollah?
1: So the irony of this is that we, it, it kind of at the early stages of the negotiations, we were going to be in New York at the UN with Rouhani. Um, and I tell this story in the book. We were open to doing a meeting, and we told the Iranians, like, sure, we'll meet. Um, Obama's view was if that will help jumpstart this process— Um, we'd done a lot of the prep work already. So we kind of knew what the outlines of the deal were. Um, and the Iranians, um, the people around Rouhani clearly wanted to have a meeting, but you could sense their own politics because you could also sense when they were calling back to Tehran, they were being told, no, don't meet. Um, and so Obama then had me go out and say publicly, yeah, we were willing to meet, but the Iranians weren't. And that put them... Oddly, on the defensive, because Rouhani was trying to present himself as, you know, uh, this different kind of Iranian leader and, and and reach out to the world. And so then the Iranians said, "Well, let's have a phone call." Um, and so he and Obama spoke for fifteen minutes, which was the only time the U.S. president and the Iranian president have talked since the Iranian Revolution. And and it did it did um, send a message, I think, to our, each delegation and to the other countries involved that that we were serious. So I think it was. Uh, helpful in that regard. But um, ultim- we did consider, you know, I've never said this, but like late in the negotiations, we raised this issue of like, do we need to get the heads of state involved? You know, like does does Obama need to go? And the the decision was no, that would be too complicated. But what we would do on occasion is send a letter from Obama to the Supreme Leader or to Rouhani, kind of laying out, you know, some of our key positions so that they knew that Kerry was speaking for Obama and, and 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 to try to kind of empower Kerry.
0: And there's an equally interesting behind-the-scenes story to the detente with Cuba. You secretly back-channeled the Cuban negotiations through the Pope. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I uh, I ended up, I was the person who did the the back-channel with the Cubans, and I, I had probably 20 meetings with Alejandro Castro, who is Raul Castro's son, and these were like eight, Ten-hour sessions, because the first one I described, like all I got was a history lesson about you know the Bay Pigs and attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro, and and I finally <laughs> cut it off and I'm like, look, man, I wasn't even born when most of these things happened. <laughs> um, and we got you know pretty far down the field in negotiating this total transformation in our relationship um, to normalize relations, open embassies, um, have some prisoner exchanges. Each child would take some other steps, but. We couldn't necessarily trust each other. We needed a third party to kind of be the the guarantor of the agreement. So we reached out to the Vatican, and Obama met with Pope Francis, who wanted to be helpful. He's from Latin America. Um, We secretly had a cardinal from Havana um, visit the White House, came in through the the back door, gave these formal letters uh, offering up the Vatican as a venue. I flew out to the Vatican with the Cubans in the fall of 2014 um, as we— what the Vatican didn't realize is how far we'd come, because the Vatican doesn't do any business over email, which, in retrospect, is pretty smart. Really? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. they, no yeah. hacks, you know, uh, yeah. no WikiLeaks. Yeah. No private so, servers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, so we we couldn't tell them how much progress we made. So when we got there, <laughs> oh, funny. we walk in the Vatican, and we're meeting the cardinal, who's kind of the, 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 the number two guy in the Vatican, uh, the Secretary of State is what they call him, actually. Um, and we tell him, like, we're prepared to normalized relations and he didn't believe us I think at first and we had these two separate meetings first the Cuban delegation and then I went in with my negotiating partner and he kind of looked at me and said are you really you know really going to normalize relations with Cuba and I said yes and then he looked at me and he said who are you? You know, cuz I'm just young guy like he didn't I he didn't, hadn't heard of me and I'm like, "Well, I'm Ben Rhodes." And he's like, "Does John Kerry know you're here?" And and I was like, "Yeah, no, he does." And uh, um, but then we 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 had this amazing experience of reading aloud these commitments we'd made to each other again to open embassies and and take all these steps. And the people on the Vatican side, many of whom had worked in Cuba cuz they're from Latin America, they had tears in their eyes. And the wow. the, the cardinal said This is another one of those moments with Bin Laden that just felt like he said, you know, this is going to give people hope that in a world it's going to be bigger than the U.S. and Cuba, in a world where there's so many uh, conflicts and and if two adversaries can kind of put the past behind them, that that might send a good positive message. Um, And uh, that was another one of those times where I felt like, uh, "Okay, this let me just. Pause in this moment for
0: a second. And now I've got to ask about Putin. Yeah. After the DNC hacks around the Democratic National Convention, I think Obama met with Putin for the last time in September. Yeah. That was their last one on one meeting. Yep. Was it pretty tense? It was really tense. Um we um
1: uh I was so I was in the meeting with it's just me, John Kerry, and Susan Rice. Um, the first kind of hour plus was about Syria and Ukraine, the two issues that had kind of dominated the descent of our relationship. And Putin was very antagonistic. Um, I remember he, he had, I quote some crazy line he used about John, John Brennan. Uh, you know, he was describing our effort to, to support the opposition, but not the terrorist elements in the opposition. And he said, you know, you have asked John Brennan to climb up a, Spruce tree naked without getting a scratch on his ass, <laughs> and I mean, I, that's the kind of way that Vladimir Putin could sometimes speak. You know, at the end of that meeting, uh, Obama pulled him aside just one on one with Susan Rice there, uh, and uh, so I didn't hear the discussion. But that's where they discussed the hacking, mm-hmm. and Obama, uh, you know, uh, essentially warned him. You know, we know what you're doing. Cut it out. We can engage in retaliatory measures, um, and. Uh, but by then, you know, I think Putin, you know, my, the, my theory that I relay in the book is that when the government in Ukraine, the pro-Russian government in Ukraine collapsed in the face of protests, that, that Putin thought we were behind that. I don't agree with that, but he, I think he really did believe that. So he was going to come. He thought Ukraine was part of Russia. So he thought we were basically coming into Russia. Okay. We were meddling in Russia's affairs. So he was going to do it back. Um, And, and I, I, I truly believe that, that that was the breaking point for Putin. And- um, And he basically took the information warfare capability that they had developed around Ukraine and used to p- p- disseminate a lot of fake news about Ukraine and to discredit people, and he just brought it to the United States.
0: Now, Trump has tried to push this conspiracy theory, another conspiracy theory, that Obama tasked the Justice Department with investigating his campaign. But one revelation that comes out in your book is apparently you say— Obama didn't even know there was an FBI investigation yes. into the Trump campaign.
1: Yes, um, I mean of all, I mean, well, Trump says a lot of things that are false. I mean, this is completely an insane uh, theory that he's propagated. Um, the FBI, when they're conducting criminal investigations of Americans or counterintelligence of Americans, they don't brief the White House. There there, there's an, there, there used to be at least such a thing as independence of, right. of law enforcement. The, the only time that I w- that we would be brought in is if it was like a, a terrorist plot, right? And so the FBI has to tell us, you know, like, hey, there's there's this terrorist cell. And, but if they're just, say, investigating, you know, ex-Trump age, uh, associate, they don't tell us that. I learned about the fact of an FBI investigation in the Trump campaign from the press in 2017. And really? I was Deputy National Security Advisor, consumer of the presidential daily briefing. Wow. Um so there there, there really was this kind of bright line between, you know, the White House and law enforcement that I think people don't—on the outside, they don't understand. And Trump is taking advantage of that lack of understanding to try to muddy the waters here. Um, uh, to, the, the bizarre thing, of course, is that Comey thought it was somehow appropriate to discuss at length the, the Hillary Clinton investigation while not telling anybody about the uh, uh, Trump one. Um, but yes, there was no— not only did we not know that the, the idea that a president could direct the FBI, you know, a lot of what you to understand Trump and the Republicans and I, you have to understand this projection. So they assume that Obama would do what they want to do, like they would like Trump would like to be able to direct the FBI do things. So oh, he's thinking, oh, well, of course, Obama did that. Yeah. Uh, okay, but we literally could not do that if we wanted to. It's
0: not how the yeah. FBI works. Yeah. Trump wins the election, and you you get this very nice note from President Obama, I think, the day after that night. that sort of tries to put things into perspective, but it does sound like President Obama also went through his own range of emotions as those days went on after the election. How did President Obama process the Trump victory?
1: The night of the election, he called me. And his first reaction—he sounded kind of stunned. You know, I describe him like a someone who's gotten like a diagnosis and they can't quite process it. You know, and he was like, "Well, that happened." You know, and just uh, and we talked about what he was going to say the next day and his remarks. He emails me that night as I'm walking home, like three in the morning. I get this email from him. You know, there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth, and he was always kind of tra- urging us to keep a broader view and put things in perspective. <laughs> That's Sensei. about as broad as you can get, yeah. right? Uh, in the days after he kind of went through the cycles that a lot of us went through, you know how much of this was the Comey letter, you know how much of this was was hillary's campaign, he got kind of angry he you know he told me' it's like Trump never could have been elected in a real crisis, so I'm like if there was a financial crisis like when Obama yeah. was elected, people wouldn't have taken a chance on Trump, and so there was this kind of cruel irony of like and Obama said to me you know, i've got this all teed up, the economy's going well. So people can just have their cartoon, you know, and he was kind of pissed. And then at the end, you know, he started trying to reflect on these broader trends of, uh, you know, he said, you know, maybe I was 10 or 20 years too early. And and what he was getting at is a demographic, demographically, you know, he actually probably arrived before a demographic tipping point when the United States was going to become more diverse. You know, 10 or 20 years from now, Trump couldn't get elected. Just because th- that type of largely white coalition couldn't overwhelm or, or, or beat uh, the the Democratic coalition, um, and then he also reflected, you know, what if we were wrong, and what if we were wrong in our assumption that, you know, about progress, about you know, progressives make a mistake sometimes in thinking it's going to get better, <laughs> things are become more inclusive, more tolerant and uh we we what if we didn't fully anticipate the 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 potency of uh the kind of backlash politics that Trump represented that Brexit represented and i think we may have been because obama won obama so decisively not just in '08 but 12 like that may have actually um, caused us, caused to, us uh, to underestimate uh, cuz his career, Interesting. yeah I, and actually yeah, have a little overconfident yeah i hadn't actually thought of it this way but his charisma could kind of overcome that wave. And, and I, you know, if he'd run in 2016, I think he would have won. I think he would have won pretty comfortably. He, he could excite enough supporters to beat the backlash against him, but Hillary couldn't, you know. Um, and, and so he probably gave us false comfort that the country was more progressive than it was because he was personally very popular. Um, And and so, yeah, it it was a complicated set of emotions.
0: You recount Obama's last overseas trip as president in very poignant terms as other heads of state. They're worrying about what will become of NATO and the Paris Agreement, TPP under Trump, and Obama is desperately trying to encourage them to keep a stiff upper lip and carry the fight on. Uh, what kind of advice was he giving to those other world leaders? Well,
1: he was kind of trying to do two things at once because on the one hand, he was trying faithfully to say, give these new guys a chance, you know, reach out. But on the other hand, particularly with the people he was close to, he had to acknowledge that this was not a good thing, um, at least for the things he cared about. So with Justin Trudeau, you know, I remember he reached over and kind of put a hand on his leg and said, hey, you know, you're going to need to speak out a little bit more on certain values um, that are going to be threatened here. The the kind of unspoken, chilling thing being that, like, the U.S. president is no longer going to do that. So Trudeau, as a progressive leader, is going to have to raise his voice, you know. Um, Merkel could kind of see this thing come, and she was not happy. Um, and they had kind of a three-hour dinner together, where I think she kind of told them she was deciding to run again. And she was probably not going to, I think, but Trump made her feel like, we need some stability in the world. And so I got to like, you know, strap it on, strap on my boots again and do
0: this. Um, and she had the same forces uh, against working against her in Germany. as Exactly. Well, too. So, yeah.
1: and, and you know, the, um, the, the, and perhaps a, the, the most chilling one was with Xi Jinping of China because Obama was kind of Trump warning him, look, Trump, Trump, you know, he really he is, is tapping into, into some, some real grievances about trade and, um, you know, you should anticipate that you're going to have to do more on this. And, and um, Xi looked very comfortable. And he said, if an immature leader throws the world into chaos, then the world will know who to blame. And I'm kind of haunted by that remark, because I think the Chinese had kind of gamed this out. And they're like, this is a huge opportunity mm-hmm. for us. Suddenly, we're going to be the reasonable ones, right? And um, so yeah, that last trip really did kind of— and that's where I start the book, the prologue of the book— it kind of um, it resonates today with all the things Trump has done. You know, he's attacking Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau, and reaching out to the Putin and G. Um, it, it 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 resonates in ways that I wish it didn't.
0: Well, a good number of their fears have come to pass. Yeah. Uh, of all the Obama policies that have been rolled back or undermined by Trump, which burns you the most? Iran,
1: uh, but far and away, uh, for a couple of reasons um one is it's the only one that is irrecoverable i think in a way like paris the whole world is still in the paris agreement and the next u.s president can just re-enter the paris agreement um and yes we will have lost a lot of time in our own you know actions against climate change but that agreement can still be you know a real legacy item you know cuba trump is not moving forward but he didn't move all the way back and same thing and next president can pick this up and Iran is kind of like, you you either have that agreement in place or you don't. And and we spent seven, eight years years getting it. And and it it burns burns me that that that's lost. It burns me that there's a risk now of a war with Iran that I think will slowly build. It won't be overnight, but it'll be there throughout the Trump presidency. But also the hypocrisy of of it. Um, You know, Trump, I don't even think knows what's in the Iran deal to this day. Trashing it, calling it this catastrophe. And then going to North Korea, getting literally nothing. I mean, getting a joint statement that says nothing. It says, you know, North Korea will someday give up its nuclear weapons. but They won't tell us how, and there'll be no inspectors. All the criticisms he lobbed against the Iran deal are actually applicable to what he did with North Korea. Um, And so to me, that uh, it's hard not to have that, you know, get under your skin just a little bit.
0: Yeah, it almost reminded me a little bit of Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> waving yeah, yeah, a this piece is, of paper. Four hundred
1: words. You know, the Iran deal is one hundred and sixty yeah. pages. They get a four hundred word statement, and he wants to give himself the Nobel Peace
0: Prize. Uh, yeah, and then what do the Kim Jong Uns and others that we might try to negotiate with then make of that after we've walked out of the Iran deal?
1: Well, I think what they make of it is number one, I don't trust the Americans to make a real deal, because yeah. if the, you know they keep pulling out of things that that, that you know. Iran, Paris, TPP. Um, but number two, and perhaps even more dangerously with North Korea, Kim sees that Trump needs to make everything look like a success. So, because he's basically, you know, invested himself so much, Trump, in this being a success. So Kim knows he doesn't have to do anything. If he gives Trump the appearance of a success, you know, Interesting, Yeah. you know, Trump will have to trump it. whatever I right. do. Right. So So, uh, I can just say, say, yes, I'll give up my nuclear weapons. And Trump will go out and say we had a huge success. success. Whereas, Whereas, uh, uh, you know, if uh, what we had to do is actually get get verifiable verifiable commitments, (laughs) you know, and I think that's that's a very dangerous place to be in a negotiation, you know, because if the other side knows that you need it politically at home to look good before they've made any concessions, then why on earth would they make concessions?
0: Well, before we go, I know that when you were in college, you studied creative writing and you initially set out to be a fiction writer. And now that you've finished this memoir, do you think you might take a crack at writing the great American novel? You know,
1: um, someday. uh, I don't know if I'm going to do that right away. I I would love to. What's interesting is that I realized I wasn't getting anywhere as a fiction writer when I was like 23, 24, in part because nothing had happened to me in life. Now there's almost like too much <laughs> that has happened, you know um, and, and I might actually need a little more distance uh, to, to okay. uh, but yeah I'm gonna, but I am going to do a lot more writing. I'm going to start trying to do more yeah. kind of magazine pieces and, and probably another book here. Um,
0: and yeah, maybe I'll have a notebook that I keep uh, uh, notes for that, that novel I'll get to someday. Well again, this book is called "The World As It Is: A Memoir of the Obama White House." Ben Rhodes. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's really enjoyable. Thanks again to Ben Rhodes for coming on the show. You can order his book, The World As It Is, on Amazon or Audible. Follow Ben on Twitter at at B. Rhodes. That's B-R-H-O-D-E-S. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right, with hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash kick. That's g.co slash play slash kick. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.